Thank you for tuning in to Sparks and Honey's Daily Culture Briefing. My name is Ben Grinspan, and today we're going to be looking at culture in the vertical, using Q, our cultural intelligence platform, to unpack trends and changes in human behavior. And today we're going to continue our conversation about immersive uh, media, and today we're going to focus on music in storytelling. It is a bold new world for music, your Spotify's, your SoundClouds, your Break My Souls. Uh, and I'm very eager to jump into this because I think we're going to have a very cool conversation. I'll start with the people in the room, my wonderful co-briefer, Kat Lynn. We're also joined by our panel of in-house experts, Ketsi Tipe and Christian Cannoli. And we're joined remotely by a new friend of ours in Los Angeles, Tom Krell. He is a creative and cultural strategist, uh, has a PhD, and uh, was himself once a professional, and I think continues to be, professional musician. Thank you for joining us, Tom. I feel like you're bringing lots of levels of expertise for us today. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, exactly. Well, so let's dive on in because there is a lot to discuss here. Music is a fairly big, broad uh, topic. And, uh, you know, there's really interesting ways in which we can use sort of this sound. So I think one, the, our big question is um, how are cultural shifts in storytelling shaping the future of what I think we're calling auditory experiences? So maybe more than just music, um, but from everything to advertising to creation uh, to uh, perhaps streaming content as well. It's a big, bold question. Uh, for the audience today. And let's dive into our elements of culture map, uh, thinking about uh, what pops to the top. Um, And Kat, I might ask your help to talk a little bit about this because you're the one who put this together. Obviously, there's a lot of content uh, for us to sort through. This is a fairly commonly discussed music as a a thing people spend a lot of time producing content about online. What elements of culture do you see here today that you think are sort of most valuable for the conversation we're about to have? Yeah, I don't want to spoil too much, but we'll definitely be hitting on meme culture and near nostalgia today with some of our signals. But I also want to call out maximalism as well, because inevitably we'll be talking about TikTok at some point, um, a very maximalist um, app in itself. And it really goes to show like how the specific uses of music and sound have really transformed um, over recent you know, pop culture trends and such. Yeah, and, and you know, I love like frictionless is on that map. I'm th- I was t- talking about this someone recently, a couple years ago, I was on a random beach in Brazil and we were talking to these like local kids and one of them told me he was a SoundCloud rapper. And I was like, wow, the world really, the world of music really has flattened. Um, and so uh, I think we'll get into a couple examples of, uh, of that work today. But um, so look, let's start here. One thing that is certain about music today is that there are a lot more platforms for it to be impactful. Whether we're talking about streaming services, platforms like SoundCloud or social media, music has moved into a many new spaces. As the conversation reports here, one major actor is TikTok, uh, which they say is, quote, changing the music industry, how hits are made, and how platforms open uh, to new ways to discover artists and new music. Now, uh, when a challenge or a trend emerges uh, on TikTok, it always features some kind of sound clip, usually from a song, although sometimes it's another kind of audio, which serves as a common theme or like backdrop for what that meme is, right? And when that happens, we're not only sort of enjoying the meme itself, but as um, Tom Van Lair, associate professor of narratology at the University of Sydney Business School says, performers uh, in question can also um, attach themselves to the cultural capital of that moment of that song. So instead of just the person producing the music or maybe the person spinning it at a party, I don't know, attaching themselves to that cultural capital, TikTok really has encouraged people to engage with music in a way that I think is fundamentally different than a number of the other major social media platforms. Now, a great example of this, as you might have guessed from the image, is we don't talk about Bruno from Encanto, which is an earworm that every seven-year-old in America would be happy uh, to discuss with you. Um, The song uh, left the elementary school and grew in adult popular culture, though, thanks in part to a huge number of uh, TikTok uh, videos about it. And it's a good example of how something can start literally in the movie theaters, transition over to Spotify, and end up driving, you know, 50, 60,000 iterations of itself on TikTok. So my big question for the audience, and Tom, maybe we'll start with you here. I mean, I think we used to think about sort of A&R, you know, sort of the people looking for the next great uh, songwriter uh, to be, you know, sort of in smoky bars or jazz clubs somewhere. Um, Does this work need to start on TikTok and Instagram first now? Is that where we're going for the most impactful music? Um, I mean, I don't think that that's um, where A&Rs should be looking. But I think that something interesting from the article is this idea that we have to unlearn music as something we just listen to 
and you you put a question to me, which was like, is there a new social relevance to music? And I think it's actually stronger than that. I think there's there's actually like a there's been a shift in the cultural reality of music. Um, I think that what's going on on TikTok is just a, a real transformation of like the whole logic of music consumption, and you know, downstream from that, there'll be changes to music production and A and Ring and the whole music business. But I think that like you know, there's just a, a whole new set of challenges in terms of like assessing the relevancy of music cultural entities now, like whether it's a song or an artist or a musical scene. Um, and obviously TikTok is a major driver, but I think that even just to focus on TikTok misses a more holistic view. Like we need to have a more like an ecosystem kind of analytic, um, something that's like synthetic across a whole bunch of points of interest. This is a really good example because obviously you have the Disney IP, um, then you have the meme um, flow, call it, or stream or thread. Um, and then you have the musical property. Um, it's a little bit of a convoluted answer, but I think it's a, a quite a, like a nested set of problems in this example. Look, I love it. I actually think it ties closely to the conversation we had on Tuesday um, uh, about the future of fandom because, you know, it is impossible to, in some ways, divorce uh, the art, you know, the art and the artist from the community around them. And that's another metric to, to potentially pay attention to as you're trying to do sort of impactful, um, uh, use impactful music. And I, I liked, I, I think that's an interesting answer in some ways to the question of, you know, to talk about cultural relevance, we have to ask ourselves how we measure that. And I think that's a really valuable mm -hmm. insight to imagine that it's not a single, the measurement is not the streams on Spotify, that, that there are multiple culturally driven ways that we need to measure quantitatively and qualitatively how a song hits, how, how much people want to be yeah. in, engaged with it. I would just add also that streams on Spotify are, are a good index for how a song is performing in other, um, you know, at, at other nodes or at other crossroads in this kind of cultural meshwork. Yeah. So like the Bruno song's Spotify numbers are an index of the, the meme power and the meme exponent um, and obviously the power and, and, and success of the film and so forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, th I think that's an important thing to, to add there. And I'm, I'm struck actually by maybe our next signal here because, you know, uh, it's funny. I was, I was reading that um, Shape of You uh, has been listed as people's favorite song of the year for like five years straight. But, it, you know, but that's nuts because, again, it came out in, like, 2017 and we're seeing uh, Encanto pushing more stream listens than, say, other members of, uh, you know, uh, uh, other kind of music. But uh, something has happened and Kat, maybe tell us about how Renaissance is maybe changing this story a little bit. Yeah, totally. I mean, we can't talk about music without talking about Beyonce. Um, so in this recent piece from The New Yorker, author Carrie Baton actually praises Beyonce's latest album, Renaissance. For those who haven't listened to it, obviously give it a listen. Um, and she praises it as a work of, quote, sonic hyperspecificity. And what that all means is that this album is a pure celebration of dance music, right? Um, it incorporates elements of black dance music and even queer culture to really give you this very house music-focused experience, all to inject life into what uh, Carrie Baton calls the crowded and dull space of mainstream music. And she goes on to explain that this doling of mainstream music can be attributed to the rise of music streaming, which has, quote, nudged many artists in the modeling direction of easy listening rather than driving innovation in a certain music genre. So as such, um, she actually ends the article hoping for this more specificity-driven music culture, such as expecting a pure country album from Taylor Swift or a pure dancehall album from uh, Rihanna. So my question for the panel is, um, should Carrie Baton keep her hopes up here? Like, do we expect um, that tension between specificity and variety in music? How do we expect that tension to play out? Um, so that's really interesting because I think this is like a very, this is a very high level example of what you could call like whatever hyper specificity. Like this is someone who is extremely iconic, has extreme amounts of access and wealth to like spend on production and things like that. And I think that's the thing that you have to like take into consideration. Of course, she's able to like 
kind of seamlessly and very beautifully like go through many different genres and subgenres and different interests within music all within that like one I don't even know how long it is cumulatively but it's only like 12 or 13 songs and it covers over a lot of different genres but truly I think the thing that we all have to keep in mind is like these things are or these genres are already like so densely populated so I think what she's able to do is something that's almost a little bit more bespoke to her and her influence um, because I do think like as far as like you know people will love this we still there is still such a need for easy listening like kind of dulled down like simple music that people are just like you know they want their lo-fi hip-hop beats to to like chill to and stuff like that right but I do think I think this is a little bit more bespoke to her and her influence especially as Beyonce but I don't know if she um, the writer of of this uh, New Yorker article should keep her hopes up Um, I think that this is almost a little bit more of a celebration of what a lot of different people and a lot of different verticals in music are already doing rather than something that I think will honestly... I'm not sure if everyone has the money to hire 22 writers to, like, uh, to to put into all of this, and that doesn't, like, take away from the impact of this album, but still, I think that it's it's a little bit trickier than just, you know, dipping your toe into a bunch of different... a bunch of different genres all at the same time in the same album. Very quickly, I mean, it, it is funny. I'm literally sitting here thinking, like, obviously, Beyonce has the brand DNA. She has the ability to dive into this particular subgenre and we and I think we welcome her in that subgenre right it'd be very different if michael buble or like our florida georgia <laughs> line tried to release like a vogue dance hall yeah. album they don't have the ability to do that and that is an important part of sort of that that cultural relevance. I also think anyone holding their breath for a new Rihanna album, um, that, yeah. that's a dangerous, it's not I, happening. I do, yeah. I do think that we still need to like keep a lot into consideration, especially about how people, even within those genres, the ones that Beyonce's Renaissance definitely kind of capitalizes on, are in and of themselves still at a, um, they're still in debate about the um, about the impact and the yeah. and honestly the innovation of this album. Like if it is really that innovative, if it re- I've heard like a lot of people in the music space like call it um, disrespectful. I'm mm-hmm. um, in a lot of different regard um, just because Beyonce is someone who can literally buy her way into a lot of different subgenres and has the analytics and honestly like the 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 creativity from her and from the people that she pays um, to like put into this album. So I will say like this is is something that I could see is like maybe becoming a trend but it's so highly like the yeah. the, bu- the barrier to entry is already so high and the cultural um, the sentiment behind it is not even all that um, yeah. positive so I, I would say like maybe wait until maybe Renaissance 2 and 3 kind of come out to like, <laughs> that's right it is yeah. part of the trilogy mm-hmm. I was I was going to say that's you know part of this to keep in mind is that on the one hand it's a great aesthetic accomplishment but on the other hand it's also a content strategy so we have, you know, the, the article talks about how the album isn't like the kind of genre shifting that you usually expect with the Beyonce album, like a ballad, a banger, a dance song, etc. They're just spreading that out over three full length records. So um, not just an aesthetic accomplishment, but also a, a, a content strategy, not to be too cynical. Um, one other thing I, I thought of, which is a conversation no one wants to have, is that I actually found the Drake album from this year to likewise play in this kind of specificity space, um, sort of a different like ethos, kind of like in like the wine bar music space or like for lack of a better term, like metrosexual early aughts music. Um, but again, that's a, a conversation that absolutely no one needs to have. Wine, <laughs> yeah. The wine bars. But, yeah, I do think- The wine bar aughts specificity. To... I, yeah, I do think it is still very important to, um, like he said, like talk about it as a content strategy because yeah. that is what is that whole TikTok like hyperconsumption of all these different forms of music is what's driving a lot of this. And like, there's a reason why like this entire new album from someone who is as classic and and iconic as Beyonce literally has no hooks in it. Like it's it, it like every song just like changes itself like four or five times um, like within it. And I think you have to look at that yes as an aesthetic accomplishment, but also in the in the terms of um, you know building into into what is what it is now like building those thirty and forty five second bits that like you really want to like stream and 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 uh, make the rounds on TikTok. Mm-hmm. I also think it's um, about like the nature of the um, of the pop culture industry. I think because it's so broad, you're also trying to appeal to as many people as possible. So you probably try to um, kind of embody every sort of genre, but then that yeah. can also have its problems too. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think it would be more prevalent in pop culture. Yeah. Um, speaking of pop culture, let's talk about how music is showing up in Stranger Things this season. Yeah. So-
course, like Beyonce, Stranger Things is also a leading topic in today's cultural zeitgeist. Um, and in the signal from The Guardian, author Eamon Ford writes about the powerful impact the show has had in creative synchronization, or they're called syncs in the music industry, where it's basically you tend to insert classic songs into visual media, so a TV show, a movie, and that way it is primed for rediscovery by a younger generation. And a key example of this is, you know, the infamous song by Kate Bush, uh, Running Up That Hill, which has really become a viral hit following uh, season four of Stranger Things. So, of course, this has implications for the producer side of the music industry in that record labels and artists, you know, they can make a lot of money off of these type of things, tracks, but they can also proactively land these creative synchronizations. Um, artists can sell the rights to their songs to a record company, and then in turn, that record company can aggressively pitch which songs a movie should use. So if the movie has an 80s vibe, then the record label knows, okay, I'm going to pitch all these different artists that I have bought up. So my question for the panel, maybe Tom, I'll have you start this one, is that as streaming media continues to rise in popularity and power, you know, these, these creative syncs will also continue to garner more power in dictating mainstream culture. Um, what are some considerations record labels should keep in mind when trying to pitch these songs to the media? Yeah, I mean, this is a, a really interesting signal. I, I think that like, you know, first off, it's important to have some good context here, like songs from TV shows, um, including theme songs, have a history of doing huge numbers on the Billboard charts. So <clears throat> you think of like Bonanza, the Batman theme, uh, Joe Cocker's Help From My Friends on the Wonder Years. Like these were all huge songs from the, in, in some cases before, but in many cases from the show. Um, the difference now, of course, is like interconnection. So song doesn't just air on TV and then garner heaps of requests on radio stations and in record shops, um, the songs now hit across media in this way uh, and, and proliferate further and further and then become multimedia, multi-platform um, sensations. So like my intra, my intra industry advice to labels would be work really closely with your artists' sync teams, which aren't always or, or aren't even very often connected to the record label. Um, and make sure you're networking with music supervisors at um, obviously OTT platforms like music supervisors at Netflix. There's a whole org chart there. Um, you know, the question I would say to labels is how many hours per release are you working to get songs playlisted on Spotify and Apple Music versus how many hours are you dedicating to connecting with folks that actually put the music forward for show syncs? I personally think it's a bit of a moonshot to try to land syncs and drive sales or land syncs to drive sales or streaming, um, especially with new music. But you definitely want to cover all bases if you're a label. Um, I mean, you know, my favorite thing that came out of the Stranger Things Kate Bush moment is actually the stuff under the, I think it's like the hashtag gothic emo um, and hashtag cosplay. I don't know if anybody's seen this, but it's super interesting youth culture. Um, I saw like a comment under a guy in a crazy purple and black headdress screaming the Kate Bush song on a picnic table at a park. And it was like, how much does this guy cost on Roblox? Very, very good stuff. That's amazing. Um, I mean, it's funny because a, a couple weeks there, two weeks ago, we talked a little bit about Dickinson, which is a show on Apple TV Plus uh, that does kind of the opposite. And Ketsy or, or Christian, I'd be curious your thoughts on this. It is a set in the 1850s, and it, yeah, like set in like the 1850s. Uh, it intentionally plays like hip hop, you know? Uh, it breaks that synchronicity. And I'm just curious your thoughts on maybe going in that opposite direction of like pulling from catalogs that feel uh, different or asynchronous or, um, uh, you know, that, that, that uh, perhaps add a level of, I don't know, cultural tension uh, without certain, you know, it goes like upstream instead of downstream. Um, <laughs> um, I'm still thinking about that one. Um, I think the first thing that comes to mind with that sort of thing um, is eclecticism, like being yeah. eclectic. And I think that certain times have certain perceptions. So when you use music um, that has a different perception and sort of merge the two, you're creating a whole new experience entirely. Um, so that could be part of the strategy as well. And to brand, um, I don't know, that episode or series in a completely different way and change perceptions of maybe how it was or just parts of it were. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. 
Um, let's move on because uh, Kristen gave a quick shout out to, to this. So um, one of the biggest uh, trends in digital music today uh, with huge potential for strategic development is somewhat ironically disassociative and ambient music. As Jason Green writes here in the Uber music site Pitchfork, quote, over the past few years, disassociation has become an open source cultural term, ripe for applying or misapplying to all kinds of circumstance where people feel the need to tune off and turn out like, say, during a pandemic uh, or, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, any other pandemic that's popping up, right? Any real moment of cultural stress. Um, from indie darlings to Mitski and Kate LeBond, even the lo-fi hip-hop jams to study to, there's new demand for artists and music that feels so zen and disengaged from emotions as to become something uh, that can, like, literally lower your blood pressure and become an experience all in itself. Now, there's an interesting tension here about what brands are to do with this development, right? Music we often use to drive emotion, right? You put music in, an, in a, you put swelling music in a car commercial, and it really does make you want to consider buying that car, right? This is the exact opposite of that. This is music that removes some of that sense of the need to act or some of that emotion. It's intentionally disassociative. Um, and you could even say maybe Mitski is really interesting because her songs are so emotional and raw, and yet the music itself is so... Uh, often is, is sort of lo-fi and sort of quiet um, uh, and step back. So I, I guess the question here is like, what are brands supposed to do with this? Should a vacuum cleaner company, should a wellness brand consider an interest in dissociative music? Or is this not the kind of thing that brands should come anywhere near? Honestly, so I'm going to enter this from the from from already the kind of perspective that brands are already going to like engage with whatever the most popular form of music is like i th i was having a conversation with a friend recently that um like that flume era like the 2014 2015 music that was like or even like pre that like you know kind of like um flume is just the only artist that really comes to my mind was so like heavily capitalized on by brands and companies that i heard it in so many commercials that it like disengaged me from that genre entirely um um, so, I mean, that's one consideration, like, culturally. For brands, I do think, like, there's just something that is really attractive about, like, just not just disassociative music, but music that isn't immediately trying to, like, capture and grab your attention. There's a lot of brands that do, like, like I, I don't know if it's, like, it was, like, a travel brand or something, but, like, they only play, like, Ocean Waves or something for all of their commercials, which, like, you know, if you're going on YouTube and you're listening to music and, like, that's it, if you don't have an ad blocker and, like, that's the, that's the sound that you're hearing in between, like, that's something that is, like, kind of a little bit more appealing to you. Um, I do think just, like, you know, to, like, keep that stimulation to a low, I think that's something that consumers are honestly going to, like, feel pretty positively about. Um, I don't know if that's the type of feeling that dissociative music kind of, like, invokes, but I do think it's just something that, like, they should consider and, like, maybe, like, you know, that jarring, like, you know, whatever EDM track you're going to put over, like, the cell phone spinning around ah. could easily, like, change into something a little bit more lo-fi and like easy to listen to yeah. and that just might be more pleasant overall so we have a culture i don't know if you know this we have a creative strategist on the joining us today oh, tom i'm 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 curious you know what is your i'm going to ask you to do a quick pitch for free here um let's yeah. say a brand is interested in this disassociative music or the lo-fi hip-hop jams like how yeah. is there a way for them to do that without throwing a jarring like advertisement in there? Is there a way to do it uh, so, without losing what we want from that disassociative uh, experience? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> my thought is that brands can do stunty like plays in this kind of cultural mimetic space to show that they understand how consumers feel and live. Um, but to my mind, I think that advertisers basically need to figure out how to puncture this disassociative state, which is born from like, so obviously what, what Jason Green writes in the article is that this state is born from like the ever-growing circumambient connectedness slash distractedness of young people, of all people. Um, you know, it goes against the like rise and grind mind state um, to put on a challenging record, sit back for 60 minutes and simply listen to it. So users want music that can fit in with like working from home, um, online shopping, scrolling the feed. Uh, to my mind, again, like, you know, I'm sure we could make a really crafty pitch um, in the mimetic space of this, but I think that like advertisers, educators, 
activists, like anyone seeking um, to deliver a behavior prompting, value creative, cre creative, value creating <laughs> message, um, need to fight against association. So again, I think it's a cool stunty play for the right brand. Um, you know, you see these ads on, on, on the internet that are like, you don't need to see another ad, just enjoy the next 30 seconds. And you're like, oh, that's interesting. That stood out from the noise. Um, there's that kind of functionality, but by and large, I, I think that um, dissociation is an index of kind of like an overly multitasked subject. Um, and advertisements should seek to capture attention still in a pretty um, captivating way. All right. I mean, look, it, it's, it, it makes me wonder if there aren't certain websites that people passively scroll through, your ASOS's, your Madewell's, your Sheehan's, if like some level of dissociative music uh, playing from that wouldn't boost sales in a certain way. Well, the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that sound design in those spaces is, is massively important. Additionally, though, when people have this kind of like dissociative music on, they're usually scrolling with the sound off. So if you're if you're trying to reach people in the feed with dissociative music, they usually have dissociative music on coming from another sound source. <laughs> we got to figure out how to sync that up. Okay, I mean it's it's such an interest it's such an interesting space, and I didn't expect us to have an answer for it right now. Um, okay, we talked about <laughs> Kate Bush. Let's talk a little bit of these. We're going to tag these two signals together um, about old music and nostalgia and what it might mean for the uh, impactful musical storytelling. Yeah, funny enough, these two signals are actually from the same source. They're both from the Atlantic, but they're from different perspectives and different times that they're published. So the first one here by Ted Gioia um, was written earlier this year, and essentially in this article, he lamented the lack of buzz and market interest that's generated by new music. Um, so old music, which music analytics firm MRC Data defines as any song that was released either... Um, about 18 months or more ago, so that's new music, or sorry, that's old music. That old music now makes up 70% of the US music market, which I thought was way higher than anything I could have expected. And this old music is the bulk of the growth of the market compared to new music. So he attributes to this decline, not to the common complaint that you know we've all heard where it's like, oh, new music isn't as good as old music. Um, it's about the fact that the music industry is actually held back by the intentional conformity of music cura uh, curation. So when we think about the radio, Spotify, any streaming music service, all of these algorithms are designed to follow feedback loops. So um, they know which old songs you like, so they'll only play new songs that are very similar to that old song. So anything that doesn't fit in that mold doesn't get put into your feed, and the system is working as intended. And on that note, I'll take us to the next signal that talks about pop music nostalgia obsession, which was actually covered in uh, the Atlantic's Culture podcast, The Review. And so basically this episode takes place on the heels of the Grammys where we saw a lot of what they called throwback sounds win awards such as Silk Sonic and John Batiste's Soul albums. And um, the, the panelists on this podcast reinforced that the Grammys have always been historically nostalgic yeah. and that they tend to give awards to, you know, maybe famous artists who have, you know, contributed a lot to the industry but not to any up-and-coming musicians that are actually, you know, the bulk of what we listen to. But music fans aren't excused from this nostalgia, as we've seen, you know, the pastiche, retro trends um, and themes from songs from Olivia Rodrigo, Dua Lipa, The Weeknd. Those have been really big hits as well, even if they haven't actually won that many Grammys compared to some of the others. So it looks like no matter how much we talk about the future, the future of music, nostalgia will always have an influence over us as consumers, as music listeners, as well as music distributors. Um, so my question for the panel is, how can music distributors and artists balance this taste for the past without sacrificing, you know, creativity or innovation? So I think that we're already, like, we already discussed, like, one of those, which is renaissance. And I think one of the things that people were really looking at when it came to, like, this, I mean, I'm going to call it, like, a rise, but I, I'm putting that with so much, so many grains of salt um, of, like, house music really coming into, like, a really prominent mainstream because of sampling. Like, whether it's, like, Beyonce using, like, that same, like, Robin sample from Show Me Love for Break My Soul, or if she was using um, I Feel Love by Donna 
the Summer for Summer Renaissance, which is like the last track on that on that album. Or if it's like, um, I know that Charlie XCX did a cover of Tainted Love for Stranger Things. Like, there's always going to be like that prominence of nostalgia and like older sounds, but I think people are finding ways to either not just do like, you know, direct covers of that. Like, you know, it's not just like a pop star doing a, a cover of an 80s track. It's like they're finding ways to almost like, not subversively, but like yeah. put that in at a more foundational level, which is why I do think like culturally we're seeing like kind of like sampling and house music like kind of coming into a forefront. Um, it doesn't always work though. My no, gym, it doesn't. My it doesn't. gym the other day was playing a cover of that 1990s Whitney Houston song, It's Not Right But It's Okay, which has like a monster famous like house remix. And the remix they were playing was like candidly like a breathy white girl with a guitar. Oh, that's and it was so <laughs> bad. It was so off. And it was like some kind of nostalgia, but it was like, we don't, we don't need this. They don't, this song does not need to feel like it's in a yogurt commercial. Yeah. I mean, do you watch Love Island? Uh, some Love Island fans in the audience, yes. <laughs> yeah, so obviously Love Island is always hitting you with like a apples and bananas uh, acoustic guitar cover of like an amazing song. It's just such a vibe killer. Um, it's quite remarkable. I, I One thought I had, I really appreciate Christian's remarks. I think that's super helpful. I also think that, and this is a really top level thought, but I think that um, when I was looking at the Atlantic threads, I was thinking maybe this has less to do with musical nostalgia and algorithms and taste and also, or, or maybe it has to do with that and also with the contemporary fragmentation of society through all of these digital social platforms and so forth. So our obsession with old music is also an obsession with a more unified pop cultural field. That could be a driving factor. Like the big records right now, like Dua Lipa is massive today and she would be a, a small major label artist even just 10 years ago, not to mention 20 years ago. You know, Beyonce has to tour, you know, like a road dog to, to make her um, obviously massive bag. But Michael Jackson did like, you know, he would do like a 16 show worldwide tour once every five years um, because there was a more unified cultural field then. So I don't know if there's a little bit of nostalgia for the cultural world that old songs slotted into um, and brought more people into a bigger tent. It's just a thought. Alan, do you want to add something? Yeah, well, I was also going to say there's an interesting way in which uh, sort of like deeper cuts, like I think of um, Frank Ski on uh, like Cardi B and uh, Megan Thee Stallion's WAP. Like that's yeah. a, a sample that's mm. like used again and again and again within that sort of genre, but not immediately recognizable uh, outside of that. And you might have heard it before, but you're not really sure you can't place it, something like that. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a way in which the uh, nostalgia can, you know, especially uh, that sort of ethos of sampling, there's a way in which you can really be authentic with that. Yeah, yeah I do think it does also lend itself to, like, a subconscious trigger. Like, I do think, like, even for, like, Break My Soul, one of the things that, like, a lot of young people, like, heard that, like, heard that, song and they were like I don't know I've never like they don't know what that song is but they've heard the dun, 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 like time and over like over and over again so I think it does lend itself or even like the new uh, Vegas song that um, Doja Cat did which like samples Hound Dog by oh, yeah, or, yeah. or um, another another song I'm yeah yeah like there's like there's there's ways that it even if that song isn't immediately recognizable that people are able to be like oh I've heard this song I'm I've heard this song before and it's like being fed to me like lightly throughout this track so I think yeah. like that's one of the like one of the key ways that we're gonna like keep seeing it rather than you know Doja Cat covering Celebrity Skin or Miley Cyrus covering like Heart of Glass like we're, we're seeing it even bent down to like yeah. even these more bite-sized bits that are also just you know they're they, they lend themselves to like younger people to discovering that music that's as true. well although Miley Cyrus is living on a prayer cover is uh, living on a prayer um, like a prayer excuse me is a banger uh, let's keep moving though um, perhaps less appreciated uh, then, uh, sorry, um, let, let me take a step back here. One thing that's really important is for brands to get their sonic branding together, right? Inside Radio, a blog covering the audio, uh, the audio industry, reports that sonic branding is a growing practice within that field. Uh, the Signal reports that 75% of the top 25 brands analyzed in this year's Best Audio Brands report utilized a sonic logo, uh, with an increasing number of them sharing their efforts across 
digital channels. And I think that's really important here, a sonic branding ecosystem. The studies like MasterCard actually has been particularly good at that, which is interesting because if you think about it, MasterCard is just moving money around. It doesn't make a sound. The fact that they figured out how to do really good sonic branding is, is a pretty impressive for a credit card company. Other ones up here that were important are Shell, Audi, uh, Audi, and Apple have all been cited as doing really good work for this. And I'll, I'll show you another sort of up and coming example here. Um, so one brand that is rethinking what they sound like right now is Tostitos. Um, so Frito-Lay owns this chip and salsa brand and launched its very first Sonic ID earlier this year with, quote, a 1.5 second sound uh, clip uh, being meant to remind consumers of crunching Tostito chips and the opening of a salsa jar. And that is a very satisfying moment, opening up that, uh, that's, that salsa jar. That sound is great. Makers claim that audio logos can lead to 20% higher brand recall and in-store purchase. And all you have to think about is McDonald's iconic ba-da-ba-ba-ba or like the whoosh noise from HBO to recognize that you can really build out a brand just through like a two-second audio clip. So, I mean, I guess one question is, a question I had is, what does this mean for the new world of branding? Ketsi, I'm going to put you on the spot here because I am curious. Uh, you know, we talk about this in maybe these traditional channels, but like, does sonic branding look different in the metaverse? If, if we can make that can of cola or whatever pop differently uh, in Roblox or on meta, like, are we going to do that? Or do you still have to build out that audio ecosystem where a product sounds the same in real life as it is, does on your Oculus? Yeah, well, I think at first... It obviously has to be memorable. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that's becoming harder as like things are becoming sampled. Um, but then I also think, I think it's really interesting to kind of look into research and see perhaps which sounds would be more appealing um, to generations as they're exposed to new music. Um, and if like anything could be done around that. I was just thinking about um, yeah, the research aspect of it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a big question because you, you're, you're right. Like we have the opportunity to potentially reinvent that stuff. But also, I mean, this goes to of our earlier conversations about brand DNA. A brand DNA needs to set the parameters of what your sonic logo can sound like. And so you have to do that good research to recognize what is a noise that people are going to want to expect from me. Do we expect to hear the cash register ring for MasterCard? Or do we expect MasterCard to make something a techier sound or, or something? They're all, as you were suggesting, like you have, a really, have to have a really good sense of who your brand is if you're going to distill it into that one, you know, one or two second uh, Sonic logo. In the meme culture, right? Like inevitably when you come out with a Sonic identity, it will get turned into a TikTok video at some point or another. So making sure that you have that instant awareness, whether it's across different platforms or not, is really, really important. And also maintaining that originality yeah. for these, because, right? I mean, even like the Microsoft sounds have gone like, they're, they're used in so many different like TikTok memes and they're used like across like meme culture to signify a bunch of different things. So it is about like, what does this actually mean? And what does that sound actually like trigger for your consumer? Like, is that also something that's like authentic to you? Like immediately the thing that I think about is like literally like um, artists and, um, and like beat makers who like literally have like that two seconds of them like you know calling out like whoever like whoever they are like jason derulo singing his name before every single song sure. like that like those like those same things that are like authentic to them you know you obviously don't have to have someone sing mastercard at the end of every single mastercard commercial, yeah. but it does have to lend itself authentically <laughs> to like who you are sonically yeah, like, ba -da -ba -ba -da. someone was pointing yeah. out pharrell has the dun, 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 like he's the four beats with every song top there's yeah i mean uh, one thing to note is that Brian Eno <clears throat> actually did all the original Microsoft um, sound identity stuff. Um, uh, uh, my like media agency planning mind goes up here because I think there are something like 430 million podcast listeners world worldwide right now. It's like 20% of internet users in total. So audio ads are going to become more and more significant. Um, and I think it really challenges advertisers, marketers, because a lot of us, you know, we can take a good, a middling to good uh, message and hit it with really brilliant graphic design or, or post, post uh, motion graphics yeah. um, and come up with a pretty good ad. But we need to think a lot harder about like the semiotics of sound and sound design. This is something that I'm passionate about because of um, music making. And I think it's something we should all be thinking about like long and hard. Like we know from research um, that sound quality, for instance, just one variable, um, fidelity, 
correlates in really interesting ways with different things. So people will hear a message recorded one way and the same message recorded differently and give very different accounts of the semantic content of the message. So like really the medium is the message and the medium of sound is so elastic and manipulable. Um, I think we can think, I think we can make a lot of, um, you, you can provide a lot of competitive advantage to brands by thinking hard about this stuff. Yeah, it's also a good point because I, I'm glad you brought up podcasts because they are a version of sonic branding. Some of them have like the worst advertisements I've ever heard in my life, you oh, know, yeah. and you have the ability to skip through them. So that is definitely a major yeah. challenge uh, for that. Imagine not platform. wanting to skip a podcast ad. That would be shocking, right? You'd be like, oh, this sounds good. I'll listen to it. I, I mean, another thought, of course, which I already brought up, which flies in the face of everything I've just encouraged is that. I think no one listens to sound. Everybody's, everybody's scrolling with the sound off now, especially uh, Generation Alpha. Yeah. Um, so more and more people are consuming video content with the sound off. More and more people are using subtitles even to watch feature films. So the way I would put my, my view on this is sound design is hugely important when it's important. <laughs> hmm. So it's really important to think about medium-specific stuff, platform specificity to understand consumer behaviors on those platforms and then activate our like deep sound design thinking when it's going to be relevant. Yeah, Tom, I'm seeing our friend Matt Adams write down all of those great little snippets you've thrown at us. The semiotics <laughs> of sound, sound is important when it's important. Because it's true, and these are things that honestly, yeah. like, this is valuable to our clients and to the people who, who watch this, and it's just not something to get to discuss a ton. All right, I'm going to jump into our final, final signal here. We're going to talk briefly about politics. So in 1992, uh, Bill Clinton and his campaign became the first U.S. presidential campaign to select a campaign theme song. It was Don't Stop by Fleetwood Mac. It spoke to his, like, baby boomer optimism. Uh, and you've seen other, you know, you think about, um, uh, oh, God, that Katy Perry song that, like, Hillary Clinton played a lot. Like, there are a lot of different campaigns uh, that pick these things up. And music is, you know, uh, even Donald Trump dancing awkwardly to YMCA at his uh, rallies, that is part of his technical sonic ID. Now, in the era of heightened political cynicism and social media, there's a new kind of political music in the U.S., and that is one that is purely uh, sarcastic and mocking. So uh, consider Josh Hawley, who is the junior senator from Missouri, who saluted, as you can see here, on Janu um, January 6th insurrectionists that morning of the domestic terrorist attack. Now, the issue is that he also was seen running away from those very domestic terrorists uh, shortly thereafter. This came out in a January 6th insurrection hearing. And what's amazing is that people immediately cut that up. Uh, so I thought we'd watch a couple of these and set it to their favorite music to humiliate the, uh, the, the junior senator from Missouri. Obviously, that's, um, <laughs> that's Britney Spears. Uh, we've got a classic uh, Chariots of Fire going on here. We can keep going to, uh, let's see, what do we have here? Oh, uh, the Benny Hill theme song. And uh, we'll do one more here, just because we had been discussing this uh, song earlier. a little Kate Bush. And I am sad that this article doesn't include my favorite, which has the uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm theme song, which has also become a meme when you have just, I don't know, deeply played yourself. So um, I guess my quick question for us to wrap up here is, we've talked a lot about earnestly using music today. Can snark and sarcasm and irony also be really important musical storytelling tools? Is that something for us to to, to think about. I'm seeing some head nods from, from Alan, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, what comes to mind immediately is the, uh, like, bad recorder version of the Titanic theme song. Yes, yes, I love that. <laughs> like, yeah. every time it gets me, uh, 100% <laughs> of the time. It's, it's like, it's humor that I get. I, I mean, even, you know, I'm jazz weirdo so like sometimes i'll hear a technical term yeah. yeah exactly so you know sometimes you'll be hearing a uh uh solo that references another solo by you know some other artist and the the um not to get too much in the the theory of humor but there's something about that juxtaposition that can really uh make you laugh i mean yeah. i find myself often laughing like a jazz weirdo at, at shows yeah. Uh, around trying to see if anybody else picked yeah. up that reference to like, you know. Something else, right? Yeah. 
Well, that's I mean that's an important thing, right? You, you it's it, it's so good. I'm glad you brought that up because that's what this is. This is in group humor, right? That Curb Your Enthusiasm theme song. If you watch Curb, that is the spoken language of Curb, and it's a way of bonding people together during these moments where we talk about and since politics is so inherently tribal and so inherently in group thinking anyway, like it's a way of reinforcing that via using music in like a sarcastic way, Matt. And then another way, another thing too is as we focus on you know the conversation of Gen Z shaping the future of anything, uh, when we think about meta irony being such a focal point for totally. the way that we think about Gen Z's humor, meta irony is also a form of sampling when we think about how music is transforming and pulling from different things. So I really think that this speaks to the always on culture of media, when it comes to how we constantly consume, you have to know to be able to actually engage in this content. Yeah. Uh, so it shows that brands are actually knowledgeable about the changing atmosphere of culture if they're able to use music, if they're able to use any auditory sampling in a way that is humorous yeah. and leans to meta iron. It's time to be funny. It's time to get. It's time to get yeah. real about being funny. Uh, about me being funny? No, no I'm kidding. Because no. <laughs> you're not funny. I know. Uh, I know. I'm but, sorry. <laughs> but I do. I do think that there is like a serious way that you can build and and and, and in a way capitalize on levity and humor and just like actually like not being so serious. Like I think this also lends itself to like the conversations that I think we've had here like at least three times about bimbos and the fact that this is like the rise of the bimbo era. Like it's it, it's time to be funny yeah. it's time to be it's time to be light-hearted it's time to it's it and it's time to do that because that's what we have to do to get by and this is not mine for our beauty project okay friends yes. <laughs> uh this is all very relevant for some of the work that Kristen and matt and i are doing all right well i unfortunately we got to wrap up i think we can talk about music for a very long time here but let's jump into those wrap-ups and ketsy i'd love to start with you here um you know i think we've talked about a couple different cultural tensions here what might be the most important one that you saw today and how might people where might people want to fall on it how might they resolve that tension um i think the one with beyonce was really interesting um and i think it's one thing um to kind of have um like a very popular pop artist but then also kind of realizing um i don't want to say the things that they've done wrong but just like how they're able to move and like what access they have to that i think yeah. is really important to consider um I think that would be my most important yeah I, I, I love that one um christian so um which disruptions or like innovations did we see today that you think were at a had long legs the advent of TikTok. i mean what what, what did we see today that felt like it was going to be a big deal and, and continue to be a big deal in the next five years I think um, I, I'm just gonna have to steal that point from earlier, which is um, music production as content strategy. Like, uh, regardless how you feel about like where music is going, and if you're if you're a young person that just loves pop music, or you're an old head who like hates this, like everyone has like only a two second song. Yeah. Um, I do think that we genuinely have to look at the fact that music production is lending itself to content strategy, and I, I'm sure like all any anyone in music production or an AR or anywhere is looking at the fact that TikTok and, and changing attention spans are, are massively, massively shifting the paradigm of music that we're getting used to. Yeah. And that's just something that's going to continue. So, and Tom, what, um, what advice would you give people who are, it's funny, I wrote here, non-music industry types. But what about people who are sort of music industry adjacent, the media buyers, the, the advertising creatives, the people, many of the people in this very building? What advice would you give them from what we saw today to make sure that their use of, of music really tells an impactful story? Um, I mean, that's a, a huge question. So I'll try and answer it without giving you my full personal philosophy on culture and advertising. But like, you know, I've 10 plus years in music, going on a decade in advertising and media, marketing, storytelling. Like I view the music industry now as part of the culture industry more generally with like creative and symbolic and capital flows that form <clears throat> like meshworks with other spaces. So in 2022, like cultural industrial sites lie at like intersections. So music industry is or needs to be, people in the industry need to focus on where music and gaming crash into each other, where music and food crash into each other, and marketing storytellers need to provide like 
the connective tissue to bridge um, these gaps and spaces in compelling and inter interesting ways. So like simple way to put that is that songs, albums, and artists are like complex social objects now with complex social codes. We have to be really good interpreters of these things and understand them endemically, like in their own worlds with specificity. So the running up the hill example is a really good one to my mind, a good example of good interpretation of the affect and symbolism and cultural significance of the song. Um, it also shows that the Stranger Things team is like super self-aware. They know who they are, who their audience is and what their culture kind of is and, and what it means. Like, so that obviously I'm a really holistic thinker um, storytelling is always a multimedia task and ad folks need to do like a better job fostering like what I would call like a matching luggage approach to storytelling. So when there's a disconnect between like the copy messaging, graphic design and art, the sound design that we were just talking about, the world building, basically storytelling won't go as far as it should or could is not going to be as powerful and beautiful and profitable um, as it could otherwise be. So my short answer is you have to do everything um, and you have to be a really deep interpreter of cultural signals and be, be on the ground. I mean, if people try to make a takeaway from the running up the hill thing that they should put um, a slightly underground major pop hit in every single show, the second time somebody does it, it's going to fall flat. It's going to smack of yeah. disin disingenuous advertising. So that's my like, you know, 30,000 foot view of the whole um, kind of cultural landscape we've been talking about. Very valuable to imagine that, that just those intersections that you were talking about, whether we're talking about music and streaming, or I reference yeah. your, I reference your, uh, you're talking about music at wine bars, because uh, even there, there's, uh, there's space <laughs> for that strategic, impactful storytelling. Well, I want to thank uh, everybody for the briefing today. Super interesting conversation. A big shout out uh, to Kat, Ketsy, and to Christian, and of course to Tom. Tom, thank you very much for for joining us. I think we have a new music expert uh, who's going to come hang out with us. Uh, thank you for joining. You can join us Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday at noon New York time on our LinkedIn page. Remember to sign up for those RSVPs. You can tune right in. If you're interested in Q, the cultural intelligence platform we use to build today and every day's briefings, please feel free to reach out. We'd love to give you a demo of it, whether you're trying to understand the new Beyonce album or the never coming Rihanna album. Mm, that's a rough one. Um, if you'd like to join us online, if you'd like to join us in person, feel free to jump on our website, register. We would love to have you come in. So until next week, consider yourselves briefed. Mm -hmm.